Hello, everyone, and welcome to Journey to Success Radio Network. My name is Tom Tutal Cunningham. I'm a Napoleon Hill Foundation certified instructor and resiliency expert, helping people to think, speak, and act positively through the many and varied challenges of life. You can find out more about me and this interview at my website, which is Tom, the number two, and Tall, T A L L dot com. My guest today is Joseph Stetter. Uh, Joseph has worked in recruitment for nearly 15 years, and he's had the pleasure and privilege of recruiting for both small and global companies such as Deloitte & Touche, Apotex Pharmaceuticals, Acon Construction, Skechers Shoes, Tata Consulting Services, and many more. He's been a professional speaker, coach, and mentor for over 15 years, and has personally helped over 8,600 people become empowered in finding a great job with an 85% success rate of helping find employment in any field in under three months. He is the author of Congratulations, You Are Hired. It was easier than you thought, and there's a U.S. version called Congratulations, You Are Hired, similar title. The book is the ultimate resource manual to help anyone find employment in most fields. The book is endorsed by people like Bob Proctor, T. Harvecker, and many more big names. His second book is coming out in 2015. It's called 50 First Date Faux Pas and Techniques to Avoid Them. And he's also started doing dating coaching and teaches men the art of communication and the importance of recognizing core values. He ties us into job finding and life skills in general. Welcome to the show today, Joseph. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here. Uh, what an, uh, uh, a rewarding and much needed uh, industry uh, you have experience in and what you're helping people do is is so, so tough. Uh, the job market in this day and age is uh, probably as tough as it's ever been uh, when 200 or more people can apply to any job with a resume from a link on any of the job sites. Uh, your odds are pretty low and that many people are applying for a job. So, uh, the actual statistics are 500 to 3,500 applicants per one job. Oh. So there has to be a better way than that. And uh, so your book covers some pretty cool titles, but uh, let's just go over like how you found this purpose. You've been doing this for over 15 years and recruiting for some very big name companies. Uh, um, how did you get into that industry? And uh, uh, tell us a little bit uh, about the work you've done because uh, you've worked with some very big-name companies there? So uh, my experience or my direction in this kind of happened in three different reasons. Uh, I always like to joke around and say that uh, I was very confused and didn't know what I want to do when I grew up. So um, I would go take a job and get bored with it after a while go switched and so I've switched industries a lot of times. So I've actually gone through the process of switching jobs, switching industries, several times myself to understand fully what people are going through when it comes to the work experience. And um, with that, uh, I also kind of came into recruiting by accident. Just one second. Mom, I'm busy. Don't bother me now. 
I'm on a call, a very important one. Sorry about that. Just background there. Uh, so I got uh, I got into the field from the fact of just kind of by luck getting into it. Um, and in terms of recruiting, one of the things that worked for me very well is that I've been in the sales force or sales industry for a very long time and understood that selling is not about the product. It's about building relationships with people. So a lot of the clients that I came approached to, I never came and said, I'm the best, I can do this for you. I came and I asked them questions about them, and I got to know them, and I got to understand their culture. And by understanding their culture, I built the trust that they would say, okay, here's the hardest position for us to fill in the company. Let's see what you can do with that. Uh, that was one of my experience with Apotex when I first started with them. Uh, I came in. And they were like, yeah, you're not going to get any job from us. We have 100 recruiters calling us a day. And, and uh, I've, the recruiting manager told me I, I've used the same nine people for 10 years. I don't want any more recruiters. I said, just give me an hour of your time to just talk to you. And I came in, and I literally had about 40 questions to ask him about his career, his processes, the other recruiters, how they communicate with him, what he likes, what he doesn't like. And at the end of the kind of 50 minutes of him talking, I kind of said, so if I understand you correctly, this is what you like, this is what you need. I'm a boutique shop. This is what I'll do for you exactly. He goes, okay, you know what? I like you. I'll give you a shot. Here's a position to fill. It's been open for seven months. None of the recruiters have been able to fill it. I filled it within a month, like within five weeks or so. And once I filled it, that opened the floodgates for me in terms of recruiting for them. Um, because I did headhunting by listening to the client and kind of recognizing this is what it needs. In terms of getting into the coaching side of things, uh, I've worked in various companies, including private education, and I was so, I will use the word disgusted, by how bad the career services are, um, because I recognized that the people that were doing career services weren't trained. They weren't uh, aware of um, what to do. So I started kind of writing resources and in fact uh, after leaving my career path in finance, I worked for an outplacement firm called Allen & Associates. And within six months not only did I become the top salesman in North America, but I also uh, had the highest success rate of my candidates actually being marketed correctly and finding jobs. And the headquarters in Florida called me and said, why are your candidates finding jobs so much better? And I kind of smiled smirkishly and said, well, I'm not using your manual, I'm using mine. And so they flew me down to Florida to rewrite a manual that's been used for 42 years to help people find employment. And so what I've done in my book is I've actually done all the research for people. So most people, let's say, know seven to ten websites to find employment, um, that, including the recruiter sites like Mon uh, you know, Monster Work Office, Career Builder being some of the three big ones, and then from the recruiter side, you know, Manpower, Randstad, um, Hayes, Personnel. Uh, what I've done for my book is I've researched for the Canadian version over 1,600 
websites by province, by industry, for both employment agencies as well as actual job finding sites so that you can narrow them down. And in the book, I show you how to, let's say, spend only 45 minutes online looking for jobs and getting three to five times better result than if you spent eight hours a day just surfing through every job posting that exists. Um, mm. And there's little tricks like that, such as, you know, automate your searches so that they come to you on a daily basis and then you see the newest jobs and you kind of see which ones are more active. Uh, similar to how recruiters look for resumes because they do one search once and then they save the search and have the resumes emailed to them. So I teach tricks on how to optimize your monster resume uh, by things like, for example, Monster scores your resume in three ways. Number one, uh, the big websites do a major refresh of their website um, between 11.30 and kind of 12.30 at night, every night. So before you go to bed, go into your resume that's saved on Monster, for example, go beside your name, add a space bar, save it. The moment that you make any minor modification, it automatically boots you to the refresh list for the next day. Second of all, on your resume, Monster scores by how many times keywords appear on your resume. So the way that you can score extra is by adding like an areas of expertise, which is the keywords associated with the job that you're applying for, right underneath your name as kind of its own little box or category. So what happens is there's 15 words associated with the job you're looking for as soon as Monster starts scanning your resume before it's even gone into the resume. And then those words are repeated in the resume. You actually score three times higher than any other resume on the search. So using tricks like that, people can get noticed much faster and have a better success rate of overall experience with it. Uh, and because I also own a recruiting company and have recruited for large and small companies in a, a variety of industries, I have a very good understanding of what the recruiter's need or want. So I teach people how to communicate with recruiters in a way that will ensure that the recruiters are actually responding to you and you're not kind of putting all your eggs in one basket in terms of registering only with one recruiter. You've registered with multiple because a lot of times in recruiting, uh, there are several recruiting firms working on the same job order. Whoever presents you first um, gets the commission if you get hired. So it's in your interest to spend a little bit extra time and register with multiple recruiters in order for multiple people to potentially work on your case and get you excited and interested basically in whatever you have to offer. And um, like yourself, I'm fascinated with positive energy and psychology and I read a ton of books and also attend various workshops and seminars. And I started recognizing that, you know, Tony Robbins, when he talks, when you do the walk of fire with Tony Robbins, he spends five and a half hours prepping you to mentally prepare to walk on fire. And a lot of the conversation that occurs in terms of getting over your fear and knowing how to go to the next step applies to job finding because most people don't know how to sell themselves. You know, for example, I mean, most people say in an interview, and I think this is one of the biggest mistakes in an interview, you know, when you're asked about your three strengths, everybody says, I'm hardworking, I'm dedicated, I'm committed, I'm a team player. I've met very few people that say, you know, I'm lazy, I'll show up late, none of my work will be any good, and I really hate people, please hire me. <laughs> right. Uh, the only time that works is if you're related to somebody in the company or having an affair with them. <laughs> um, so 
I teach people instead of saying those words because they're also subjective and you know your definition of hardworking and my definition of hardworking can be very different things. It also depends on the industry. If you're working in accounting or in, ta- uh, in law, for example, especially during tax season or busy season, it is expected and sometimes required of you to work 80 hours a week. So what's hardworking, 100? Whereas right. in, if, you're, if you're working let's say, in uh, project management, in, let's say, uh, IT, hard working might be putting in five hours of overtime because it's a different structure. So instead of saying generic and subjective words, give specific examples that demonstrate how hard working, dedicated, committed, or a team player you are because you can quantify the examples. And when you have quantifiable measures, and every business works on key performance measures, and every department does, you can stand out. So even as an accountant, if you're doing, for example, payroll as part of your accounting duties, how big is the payroll? Are we talking a payroll of five employees or are we talking a payroll of 500 employees? It makes a very big difference in how good you are and what you have to offer. And a lot of times what I find is people forget that they've actually done something in the job. And, you know, when I ask them kind of what are your three biggest achievements in your career, it is amazing to me how hard that question is for people because no one really thinks about it. So I, I tie it to people and I say, okay, well, when you go home and you speak to your spouse, your family, about your work? Did you come and say, well, I did some work today? Or do you share, you know what, I got to experience this today. This was a new experience to me. This was a challenge for me. This was that. So the way that you talk to your spouses, your mates, your family and friends, those are the conversations you want to have in an interview. You want to make it more personable. You want to uh, ensure that that creates that model of, you know, enthusiasm. So in the interview process, and my book talks about it, I've devised seven rules to get any job that you want. And if you follow these seven rules, um, you will be very successful. Uh, One of the stories that I share in the the book, which again goes to show you how the listening occurs, is uh, my brother was studying mechanical engineering and he applied for an internship. By the time one of the companies responded, he registered for his fourth-year classes already, and the job description was going to be more of a paper pusher job. Um, I kind of decided to see how good I am because I wrote his resume, so I decided to go in as my brother to the company uh, and interview. Now, in the interview, there was 100 mechanical engineers there from Queens, Rifty, Waterloo, and Ryerson. Within 45 minutes, Human Resource called me back and said, we love you, we need to come back for a second interview with the manager of the department. I was like, okay, let's see how far I can take this. So I went in. Now, I spoke the truth about my brother's resume. So my brother was on a team that designed a wheelchair for third world nations that uses a tank chain so it can go on any terrain. Came second in Ontario for the best mechanical engineering projects of the year. I won $500 from RBC. Told the manager I studied thermodynamics and quantum physics. To this day, I have no idea what those are. <laughs> and um, I didn't even leave the parking lot. Manager called me back and said, I adore you. I need to come back for a third and final interview. Out of 100 candidates, I made it to the final three. And um, I was the first one in at 8.30 in the morning. Manager walked over to me and goes, here's your offer letter. The job's yours. All you have to do is pass this mechanical engineering test. 
I looked at him, I looked at the test, I looked at him, I looked at the test, and I was like, I can't do this test. Magic looked at me and goes, I know you're nervous. Let me help you. He literally gave me the first two to three answers. And because also working in recruiting in such a variety of industries, including engineering, I looked at him and said, look, I'm, I guess I'm a lot more comfortable with the design than I am with the calculations. I'm not the right candidate for this job. Thank you for the opportunity. He followed me to the car and begged me to take the job because I'd interviewed that much better than every other mechanical engineer. Wow. So uh, <laughs> That's a pretty powerful story. Uh, so it's one of those scenarios, you know, where, again, doing something differently, one of my greatest successes in terms of coaching somebody uh, was a salsa partner of mine and literally got her hired in two days in a process that was supposed to take very, very long because she came to me and she was like, um, there's a graphic design internship at Bell Canada that I'm dying for. I really, really want this. And I kind of made fun of her and I was like, you really, really want it? She's like, yeah, I really, really want it. I'm like, okay, you have to do everything I tell you because this is how it's going to work. She's like, okay, fine. I said, first of all, if you're going to do a graphic or apply for a graphic design resume, you're not allowed to have a black and white cookie cutter resume because the word graphic and design are in the job description you're applying mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. So we made her resume green, and she has a little kind of dancing guy that she uses as her signature for all the work that she's done in terms of a few projects that she's done consulting for restaurants or otherwise. So we made that her bullet points on her resume. Uh, two weeks passed, and during the two weeks, after the two weeks passed, she called me, she's like, oh my God, they didn't even call me, you're awful, you don't know what you're doing. The next day, they called her and said, we are so sorry, we haven't called you back yet. We've received over 9,000 applications for 20 unpaid internship positions. Wow. And we absolutely loved your resume. It was one of the favorite resumes we've seen in the entire process. And so we're really, really sorry. Um, We just want to let you know, because we've received so many applications, this will be a three-interview process. Uh, So we will bring you in first interview if we like you, second and third, because we want to kind of choose the best of the best. So she hung up. I think her interview was two days later basically, um, her first interview. She called me, she's like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. They called me, they called me, they're, they're great to interview. What do we do now, what do we do now? And literally was like so out of breath, and I was like, okay, relax. Let me teach you my seven rules. We'll reemphasize them. And she was working as a barista, for example, at Second Cup, and I show, I kind of tied in how, you know, designing the foam and coffee is graphic design and teamwork and team building. You know, I instructed her to go and print a few of her better pieces on very high-end, glossy, high-quality paper to bring a portfolio with her. She had her Flickr account set up so that her work is ready to be seen and right in front of uh, there. She came in prepared with the seven rules. We kind of practiced it for the next two days. She walked into the interview. The director at Bell interviewed her for 20 minutes, turned around to her goes, I've been running this program for about 10 years. I have never been so impressed with a candidate. I'm not even bothering with the second and third interview. You're hired, and he hired her in the middle of her first interview when every other candidate had to go through the three-interview process. Wow. 
<laughs> this is incredible. Now, let's talk about a few areas of uh, uh, that uh, I've, I've been trying to teach my own. Uh, my uh, wife has two sons, 25 and 23, and I'm trying to teach them some of these things. So while you're unemployed, there are things that you can do, aren't there, to add value to a company. And you choose a company, I imagine, that you want to work at or would desire to work at, but how can you add value to any employer even when you're unemployed? So uh, I'm going to answer that in two parts. The first is how you apply for jobs, and number two, kind of what you do to get noticed by employers. So in terms of how to apply jobs, you see the majority of people today, unfortunately, we've become a little bit of a lazy status quo society. Um, and most people spend the majority of their time applying for jobs online. The problem with online is most companies today have a generic template that you have to fill out. And because you have to fill out with the right words, there isn't a sense of flavor of who you are. So a good job applicant or a smart job applicant should spend 20% of their time online searching. And as I said, I've researched the websites for you, register with kind of a few of the big ones and a few of the smaller ones because what happens is the company's code, the websites that they post on differently, and the one, usually the ones that are smaller, they'll kind of call first because they're like, not as many people know about this website, so I'm impressed that they actually did some research. So I'll interview those first. Um, second, is you know register with multiple recruiters because recruiters already have the ins to the companies, and if the recruiters like you, and multiple recruiters are presenting you for the same job posting, the company is more than likely to interview you. Um, the third is um, using your social media. So I'm a huge fan of LinkedIn, for example, because LinkedIn has a feature called InMail, where you can pay. I think the cheapest one is about. $25 a month, which gives you the opportunity to send um, 10 emails to someone who's not in your network on LinkedIn. And if they don't respond, LinkedIn doesn't charge you. So only if they respond does LinkedIn take the credit for it, uh, take the credit of the 10 emails. But any job posted on LinkedIn, for example, you can also see other people in the company. So you can start a conversation with other people in the company, get some a little bit of insider information on what the culture of the company is, kind of what they like hiring, what should be done in the resume by actually calling the company and asking for the department you're applying for, just talking to them a little bit about the experience of working there and what they like about there, what's, you know, what's the greatest thing about working there, and just get people excited about their own experiences. Um, and that also ties into like networking and referrals and asking for it because we seem to be terrified of asking for a referral because you know, what if you don't work out? What if they don't like you? It's on me kind of mentality. And I find that kind of ironic because the best businesses are the one done by referrals. Um, and usually most companies have an incentive for employees to recommend people that they know or like uh, that pays them anywhere from 300 to a couple thousand dollars, depending on the seniority of the position, if the person passes probation uh, once hired. So there's an incentive for you internally to recommend employees. Now, one of the things that I, I'm a very big advocate and uh, it ties in both on LinkedIn or social media referral asking and as well as network and obviously networking in terms of live networking. There's 
tons of organizations such as, uh, you know, Postmasters, such as uh, the BNI meeting, such as uh, the project manager, the PMP or project management designation, the Board of Trade, that you can go to a breakfast, lunch, or dinner, or any other networking, or specifically to the industry. There's a lot of events specific to that industry that you can go to and choose. Now, the problem with most networking and also on LinkedIn is if you're on LinkedIn or applying for a job and you send an email saying, hey, I applied for this job, they really don't care. You haven't impressed them. If you go to a networking and go, oh, hi, this is my business card. Here's my business. What do you do? And stuff like that. Where I teach people, and I think fundamentally, um, it's one of my rules is when you go networking or even on LinkedIn, make the conversation about them. Uh, you know, I, I speak to executives and I've had the pleasure of dealing with executives through my recruiting. You know, when you ask an executive, tell me what were your three biggest achievements in your career? Executives, unless they're in a position where they've been downsized and they're looking for a new job, they don't get to celebrate their successes as much. They don't get the recognition or the pat on the back, and we all want that um, in one capacity or another. So starting, let's say, an, an email, a LinkedIn conversation, uh, hi, Tom, I see that you've been very successful in your career. You've done this, you've done this. What would you say was one of your greatest achievements or experiences? As an email to you, you are more likely to answer that email than, hi, Tom, I'm looking for a job. Right. Uh, same thing when you go networking in front of because if you ask the person about them and their career and their successes, their strategies, their, you know, how did they get their foot in the door when they started their career, and, you know, what did they do to get noticed, they'll remember you a lot more. And what will happen is in a networking event, if you're talking about them, they'll actually ignore all other conversations because they're engaging the conversation they're having with you because they're getting an opportunity to kind of go, ooh, I am really good at what I do and I have been really successful. And it's not just about my title, it's about I know what I'm doing and I've done this and I've done that. Um, and I teach people, and it's one of my rules, is always make it about them. You know, I don't care if, you know, if you brought in your resume that you have hobbies such as uh, I'm a soccer player, I'm a runner. And they ask, well, tell me about running. They actually don't really care about the fact that you run. But the tie-in of, you know, my dedication to be healthy is the kind of dedication I bring to this company. Make it about them. Make it about them. You know, um, one of the guys that I highly admire, uh, his name is Timothy Ferris. He's written uh, the 4-Hour Workweek. He's written the 4-Hour Body, the 4-Hour Chef. Uh, he loves the four as a kind of his mm-hmm. theme. Uh, in his chapter in the four-hour work week, he talks about being, I think, at Stanford University uh, for the MBA program. He was invited to do keynote speeches and kind of talks and exercises for a week. And he talks about, he said, okay, to the MBA students at Stanford University, I'm here for a week. I challenge you to try and get a personal email from, I think it was Bill Gates, Bill Clinton, or Steve Jobs at the time. And 98% of the MBAs at Stanford University said, that's impossible. There's way too much security. There's way too much, you know, barriers for it. The 2% that didn't were like, okay, well, we accept the challenge. Let's see what we can do. And they started researching. And one of the students found an old article from, I think, 1981. Uh, uh, I think it was Bill Gates or Steve Jobs. I can't remember the name right now. Where in the article, 
Uh, I think it was uh, Bill Gates said that his favorite birthday gift was the little red bicycle he got when he was 10 years old. Hmm. And at the end of the article was an old Pegasus email. So the student thought, okay, I have nothing to lose. And he sent a kind of two-line email saying, Hi, Mr. Gates, I read an article from 1981 that said that your favorite birthday gift was a little red bicycle. I was wondering if you still have the bike. Signed, student. 24 hours later, he got a response saying, No, I don't, but thank you for reminding me of such a great moment in my life. Signed, Bill Gates. And he just proved that in 24 hours, he could get a personal email from one of wow. the most powerful people in the world. Oh, um, wow. And that mentality of, you know, if you're using social media to contact, you know, um, you've obviously had uh, a great career where you've interviewed very famous names and uh, yeah. so forth. Like, you know, and I, I was just uh, listening to your interview with Tom Ziegler. And again, it's a level of, you know, there's association to Zig Ziglar. He's such a big name. Um, there's, uh, you know, oh, there's that a little bit starstruck with him, but at the end of the day, they're human. And if you send him an email going, I read this about you and you're, you're a great exactly. person and you've done this, um, what was that like? Exactly. Joseph, I have a great story on that point. That's how I got to meet. Uh, Brian Mulroney, when he was Prime Minister of Canada, I read the book uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie, gave me some great ideas, and I knew a lot of things about Brian Mulroney and read a lot about him, and so I wrote a letter based on his life and his goals and some goals he achieved that, you know, he wanted to show off and how he did it and various things, a really good letter. And within three months, I had my meeting with the Prime Minister of Canada. Uh, just going to that point, like if you read some things or know some things that are personal to that person, that are celebrated by them, that's a real warm spot for them, you can reach anybody. And uh, it was very, very and cool. To the, yeah, and this is the heart of sales, and this is the heart of relationship building because you touch these people emotionally um, in terms of showing them how much you care about them rather than how much you know about them. Um, right. And that is a fundamental that I don't think we do enough as a society today. Um, you know, it kind of ties into my new book in terms of uh, 50 First Aid Full Pause. There's a level of such a disconnect where we want people to be real, but we're afraid of being real, which is almost kind of, oxymoronic a little bit because we're so afraid of being vulnerable and being hurt and you know but we want honesty and integrity from the people that we meet and as soon as something comes up like oh my god you've experienced this I'm too afraid of dealing with that okay I'm done with you and it creates a model of the grass is always greener on the other side because you're not willing to work through issues or problems. I mean, you know, I've read your bio and this is something that you've had a lot of health issues that you've overcome. And there's a level of, you know what, you have to acknowledge that this is something that I experienced and this is what I learned from it and this is how I grew and became a better person. But we seem to live in a society that is almost the opposite of that, where we're not ready to deal with issues and we're afraid to ask for help. And the few that do, 
tend to kind of live a more fulfilled life because they recognize even all business associates, if you watch Dragon's Den or Shark Tank or they're, you know, entrepreneurs that are up and coming come not necessarily because they need the money, sometimes they do, but because they need guidance because they're going like, okay, I hit this plateau, I can't get through here, I need, you've made it, I need you to kind of help me push to the next level, for example. Um, and we forget that, you know, most successful individuals take a lot of pleasure in giving back by sharing some of their knowledge and expertise. And mm-hmm. um, being granted that opportunity, not from I'm trying to be hired, so, so long to your sign, you know, if you contact an executive in a company, like because uh, in my book I've also kind of scripted how to warm call a company and create an excitement or interest, you know, like, for example, ask a successful interview to critique your resume, not to hire you, but to give you feedback based on their expertise or knowledge. You know, it's a very different conversation than please hire me. Right. Um, you know, to offer, you know, one of the stories which uh, why also helping people as a whole being empowered and being of service to people, um, you know, in Canada it seems to have a catch-22 of, you know, you have to jump to many, many loopholes to immigrate to Canada. And then when you get here, you're told you don't have Canadian experience, you're not good enough to contribute to Canadian society. Um, my father, when we first arrived, in, or when he first arrived to Canada, uh, my father was a civil engineer, and uh, he was fluent in close to 10 languages. And, wow. uh, you know, in 1980, he did billion-dollar projects before people knew what billion dollars was because he built all the highways in Ivory Coast. And when he came to Canada, he was told, well, you don't have Canadian experience, you don't have Canadian And for seven and a half months, he couldn't find employment. He finally went to a small construction company and said, listen, I will work here for free for two and a half months. If at the end of the two and a half months, my work is not as good as any Canadian project manager, you don't pay me a penny and you've lost nothing. If at the end of two and a half months, my work is as good as any Canadian project manager, you, you pay me for the two and a half months that I work and you hire me full time. Within two weeks of him working or two and a half weeks of him working for free, they made him the senior project manager for the entire company. Wow. And, and this is where I can say the majority of the people that I've helped are new immigrants that have zero Canadian experience because it's actually illegal to ask for Canadian experience. And it doesn't exist because Canada is one of the most multicultural yeah. countries in the world. Canadian and amazing countries in the world. Yes, it, it, is a, it is a fantastic country and there's great opportunities. Um, but this is where a lot of people don't know, right. especially coming from foreign land, what are their resources, what are their options. Um, so I teach people, and most of the people that I've coached that are the 8600 are new immigrants with zero Canadian experience that I've kind of said, here's how you formulate it. And unfortunately, we don't have the right systems in place. So, you know, and I'll use something because this is one of my pet peeves, like uh, let's say medicine. Um, if you've been a practicing doctor abroad for 10 years, 5, 10 years, there's a certain level of knowledge that you have. It, it amazes me that you have to come to Canada and then you're a taxi driver because you have to go through 10 years of education and you're, you know, you're 50 years old with kids and so forth. Mm-hmm. Not the easiest thing to do. 
I personally think there should be a level of, and I recognize that, you know, there's different qualities of education between, let's say, a third world country and a first world country, but if the government wants to monetize it and regulate it, if somebody who's a doctor abroad comes here, they do an entrance exam that the government charges for. They do a two-year residency uh, under the supervision of a Canadian doctor, uh, where if government wants to monetize even more, they do a midterm exam and then they do an exit exam after the two-year residency. If you pass that two-year process, you can be licensed as a doctor because you have the qualifications and the Canadian doctor has signed off that you know what you're doing. And as part of, let's say, right now, and I know not necessarily in uh, GTA, but in Canada as a whole, there's a huge shortage of doctors. I'm pretty sure that a lot of immigrants would be willing to go to Saskatchewan, which is desperate for doctors and desperate for people, if they had an opportunity for a better life and an opportunity to work in the field that they've studied and practiced in. And as a standard, there can be, you know, you have to have worked in the profession for at least, at least this many years to recognize that you have hands-on experience and you have knowledge in the profession, regardless of the amount of or the variances in education. Right. Uh, as a model, uh, again, it's just a model of creating, kind of being recognized, being uh, doing something different that shows. Uh, you know, uh, in my book, and again, this is where I talked. You saw, talked about uh, your children in terms of how they can find. Uh, I know somebody that kind of uh, stories that I've shared is they dedicated their social media for a month to a particular company or a particular person in a company. So their Twitter, their uh, like Facebook, they created like a Facebook fan page, they created a whatever, and they made sure that there was enough kind of traffic going through those to um, get the person to notice. Okay, you obviously want to talk to me. You've got my mm-hmm. attention. You just spent a month promoting me everywhere, and people were talking like, you know, you've created a video, you've created something that there are, you know, there's a lot of ways that you can get noticed, some of them relatively inexpensive, some of them there, you know, most executives have a routine, like they usually, depending on where they work, they go work out because most executives are in the office by 7 in the morning, so they go work out at 5.30 in the morning near their office, for example. Find out where the routine is, build rapport with secretaries, build rapport with other staff. You can, oh yeah, this person works out a good life at 5.30 in the morning at this location. Start working out there, right? Because on LinkedIn, you can see the picture of the person, so you have an idea of who they are. Start up a conversation as part of a workout. Boom, you've been noticed. You've been noticed not through the typical job market, not through that. So that's kind of another baby step of, of getting noticed and doing something different. Um, and it's funny because as I was writing my new book on dating, how the similarities between job interviewing and dating are the same because, you know, uh, most online dating profiles, for example, go, I'm smart, I'm funny, I'm intelligent. I'm looking for someone who's smart, funny, intelligent. Okay, so let's use the first word, smart. Again, a subjective word. What kind of smart are you looking for? Book smart, street smart, relationship smart, business smart. Um, there's different types of smart. What kind of funny are you looking for? Who do you consider funny in terms of comedians that are known right now? Because there's a very big difference in sense of humor between what Chris Rock has to say and what, say, Russell Peters has to say. Um, they're both funny, 
they're just funny in a different way, and not every piece of comedy will work for you. You know, most job descriptions are very generic, and um, in my opinion, 70% of a job description is fluff because I've yet to meet a recruiter or an employer that has done a search under hardworking, dedicated, committed, or a team player. It's just implied. You know, excellent communication skills. What does that mean? Because <laughs> I've met a lot of people that don't have excellent communication skills, and how they got hired is beyond me um, in terms of that was part of the requirement for the job. Um, so this is where there's a level of, you know, I'm dating when you have a first date. It's kind of like the first interview. You're, you're trying to find a common ground and a conversation that flows, um, and in part, it is an interview process because you kind of want to make sure that there is enough interest or similarities or differences that you can start with. You know, if you come to a job interview and go, please, please, please give me a job, I'm really hardworking, you're not telling that you have confidence. If you approach a woman, you know, looking down at the floor, stuttering, going, um, hi, I'm hi, I'm, 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 hi, I'm, 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 can I get your number? Your chances are slim enough. The reason I say slim is because the woman must be very physically attracted to you on the outside, so she'll give you a woman uh, a little bit of opportunity. Most psychological studies on women show that the two things that women look for in a guy are confidence and sense of humor. So there's a level of you need that confidence to go into an interview, and that's one of my rules. Also, like coming in with the confidence that you already have the job. If you come in with confidence to talk to a woman that you have something to say or something of value to offer, she will notice your energy. She will kind of go, okay, I will allow this conversation to occur and process the conversation. So um, I think there's, you know, it's funny how job and relationship are usually the two biggest stressors for people and the biggest kind of frustrations because we're so lost and, you know, I think the statistics say that close to 90% of people are miserable at their job right now. And yeah. part, of it is, part of it is because they're not empowered. Part of it is because they don't have a voice. And if you take a look right now at the dating world, how many online applications are there? How many phone applications are there? But we, as a society, tend to base it on the picture. And what if you don't photograph well, uh, as opposed to at least having a little bit of a conversation? You know, people today are too obsessed with, and, you know, I've had this myself where, like, let's say I contact someone online, and they're like, I don't want to give you my phone number. Let's keep emailing and I want to get to know you through email. I'm like, I'm sorry, but I don't know how you measure chemistry through typed messages. Mm. Just because I can articulate my thoughts does not mean that if I were to speak to you, we would have a conversation that flows. Um, and, you know, it's very hard to say a joke when you're typing it because a lot of times the delivery of the joke is more important than necessarily the joke itself uh, or the energy associated with the joke. When you're typing, it's really, really hard. And there's this fear of, well, I'm meeting you online, so I'll be more reassured if I've, you know, sent you 17 emails. But 17 emails doesn't do anything because most of the emails are short in that there are a few sentences at most, and they're one question or 
part of the question, like, have you traveled? Yes, where have you traveled to? Well, I've gone here. What was your favorite experience? But you can't build. I've yet to meet someone who's gotten married over a piece of paper without ever meeting the person in person or talking to them in person. Um, Exactly, exactly. And that's... uh, and that's where you have to get the one-on-one communication. There's this email that doesn't do it. Right, and it's the same thing for job finding. It's very rare uh, that, you know, you get hired strictly from submitting a resume. Um, unfortunately, as I said, a lot of companies, especially the, the bigger companies, have created a process of we can eliminate candidates by saying, um, you know, submit your application online. It's a screening process. You know, I remember when I was working in finance, I applied to eight different positions in a bank. I got hired for one of them. And three and a half weeks after I got hired, I got a letter from HR saying, thank you for applying. We'll keep your resume on file. (laughs) And I took the letter letter to HR and said, should I be worried about my job? And HR's response was, oops. You know, like the other positions, we never really looked at your resume. This is an automatic letter. <laughs> so I was just like, but, you know, in the status of uh, applying for the job and applying for the opportunity, they forgot that I got hired to deactivate my other profiles for the other jobs. Um, <laughs> and unfortunately, that's where HR and, you know, good example of I'm, some of my clients you know, companies of 1,500 people, for example, um, have an HR team of three people. So they don't have time to screen through the resumes, which is one of the reasons they use recruiters. But in the same respect, there's a level of, like, you know, and Canadians were very polite. So there's a level of, um, you know, when the job application says, please do not call. Most of us won't. I teach people, do act a little bit ignorant. Like, you know, my computer just crashed. I'm not sure if you received my application. Can you please check? That forces the HR person to go look on the database to see if your resume is there. And if she goes, yes, we have received it, she's looking at your application. So you have them on the phone. So when are you starting to call people? Can I follow up with you in two weeks to, if I don't hear from you? Ask permission. You're in the door. You're already there, as an example, right, where most people won't do that step because what if you rock the boat? I teach people, I tell you, like, you know, if, if you've called and the 3% that might delete your resume because you actually called them, send the resume again mm-hmm. after you call, right? If you send your resume 10 times to the same company and they call and say, stop sending your resume, at least they've noticed your resume. They just don't like you but at least you know that you're not getting hired. And then you can change the conversation to a learning experience by saying, okay, I understand you're not interested in me. Can you give me feedback as to why you're not interested in my resume or why my resume is not resonating with you? And again, when you ask for feedback, it is amazing how almost the garb is down and there's a willingness to uh, do it, you know, there is a certain level where one of the things that, you know, in talking to guys, because now in terms of dating, coaching, and so forth, there's an overlap. And I said, look, you have to understand, I'm not going to teach you how to be a pickup artist. That's not who I am. That's not what I'm about. 
Um, there's plenty of books for that. But the art of conversation is very important. Um, so, you know, generally speaking, not all, but a lot of accountants or engineers are usually not known for their bubbly personality. And I, I know that you studied to be an accountant initially uh, and then realized that wasn't for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you are more introverted, usually accountants are more introverts as a personality. You know, so this is where I'll use engineering because it's an easier example to give. You know, if some if a woman asks you what do you do, and usually engineers will say something along the lines, "Well, I work as a mechanical engineer in thermodynamics, and I calculated this combobulation of blah 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 blah." Most women will go, "Uh huh, that's nice," because it goes right over their head. What mm-hmm. guys need to understand. What guys need to understand is women relate to the five senses, women relate to emotions. So instead of saying that, say, I work as a mechanical engineer, um, I've been working on this problem for three months, I finally figured out how to solve it, I'm really excited about that. Do you know what I mean? Every single woman can relate to solving a problem. And having that tie-in where you said, I've solved a problem, have you solved a problem, allows the conversation to flow and the answers to remain, right? Wow. Men tend to be very logical. Women tend to be very emotional, um, especially when starting the conversation. Men need to learn how to create that emotional conversation. Um, in an interview, the better your emotions in terms of the fact that you're energetic, you're excited, you have confidence, the better the listening of you uh, for it. it. It goes hand in hand, you know, first dates, there's, you know, try to be a little bit original. Like, yes, you don't want to waste time if there's no chemistry there, but there's a level, and it's funny because I just went to a lecture yesterday um, by someone who's quite known, especially in the Jewish community, her name is Adrienne Gold, um, as a speaker talking about dating and so forth. And she said, there's three things that you need in dating. The first is attraction. But we make the mistake that, you know, when we think attraction, we think, oh, my God, I need explosions and, like, crazy, amazing sparks. If, if you've ever seen Dharma and Craig, uh, you know, where they met on the subway and a day later they were married. Hmm. It's a fantasy world of, yeah, that's going to happen to me, too. Attraction comes in many forms. You can be attracted to somebody's sense of humor. You can be attracted to somebody's intelligence. You can be attracted to physical appearance. As long as you're not... You know, there's something that you can potentially build on. So the first is attraction, but also recognize that because in the society we live in, there's so much information coming in us, there's so much that, you know, our perceived notion of perfection is sometimes we're kind of almost too attached to that fantasy. So as long as you're attracted to something about them, give it a, at least a date or two, because usually your first date, you're nervous, second date, you're... you're um, a little bit more yourself, I'll call it that. Uh, the second level of uh, kind of connectivity to that is, you know, your commitment to work through problems. Going back to what I said earlier, you know, we want people to be real, but we're terrified of being real. We're terrified of being vulnerable, being hurt. You know, I've been through this relationship. It's been this long. I got hurt in this relationship, so. I want to do everything I can to avoid getting hurt again. But if you're doing everything you can to avoid getting hurt, you're not open to experiencing new opportunities. You have a listening of, I'm going to compare you to every other person. Um, And that creates, again, a problem of 
flow, I'll call it that, from a perspective of you won't recognize the opportunities in front of you because you're so set on avoiding this experience or that experience. And, you know, uh, very few people have lived the kind of life where nothing dramatic or um, drastic or whatever word you want to use has happened to them that they had to overcome and deal with. There's very few people that have had that kind of perfect life. But it's not about, you know, I, I like to joke with people and say, you know, some people have issues. I have a subscription with older issues because we've all had our fair share of, I'll call it skeletons in the closet. But as long as there's something that was learned from it, as long as there's something that was gained from it, um, there's an opportunity to experience. You know, we, we do this in jobs too. You know, you've worked in this profession for this many years. Just because you worked for one horrible boss, let's say in sales, doesn't mean you hate sales for the rest of your life. It just means this particular boss was not the, the right fit for you. Um, but in dating, it seems like, oh, my God, you did this or you've experienced this. I can't talk to you. I can't deal with you. I'm done with you. Mm. Right. Wow. And, the third, and, and the third part is the willingness to kind of love each other even when you don't feel like it. Um, you know, I, I remember I was doing a uh, uh, landmark course, and the guy that I was there said, I pledge to kind of create loving my, my wife every single day. And we said that to me and said, that seems like an odd statement. And then he explained it to me, and Adrian Gold explained it yesterday as well. She said, it's an emotion. It's an action. You choose to create it. So, you know, it's one thing to say I love you, but okay, you know what? I wrote you a sticky note or I wrote you a smile. It's just that little thing that stands out just like choosing to be energized, choosing to be tired, choosing to be excited, choosing to be miserable. It's the same kind of connection to it. There's a certain level, like, when you commit to somebody, and especially when you get to marriage, every relationship has its ups and downs. But you have to commit to, you know what, I'm committed to loving you, I'm committed to working things out with you, let's try to make it happen. Whether it's the two of us just do it together, you know, whether it's going to a therapist, whether it's going to a course, whether it's reading a book, whether it's going to a retreat, there's a lot of options available for you that can create that we lost, you know, and Adrian Gold talked about both the physical and the chemical bond. You know, if you just have a physical bond, over time it wears out. You need the chemical bond as well. And so when two elements are put together, uh, let's say in building a house, you kind of, um, what's the word, like shave them or kind of rough them a little bit so that when you put the glue in between them, there's air pockets that the glue goes into so that the bond becomes stronger and holds stronger. You know, so on that mindset, there's a level of, here's what I need to do, here's what, there. there's little gains that you can create in the relationship, in the conversation that allows for um, that love to be recreated. And, you know, it's funny because there's a lot of, in your partner that you've committed more long-term to, a lot of little things that normally would annoy you about other people, but with your partner you find them adorable and you find them to be sweet 
Um, and it's because the dynamic works well in that other things work very well and you're, you're willing to kind of look the other way. And we tend to focus too much as a society on the negative of someone as opposed to the positive. And that is a huge, huge mistake because the more we focus on the negative, the less we have an opportunity to enjoy the positive and the less we can actually move forward because we're always having that mentality of the grass is greener on the other side, which is why and one part online dating is so successful because if you go on a date and he's not as funny as you would like, you go online and somebody will boost your ego and you can have another date. Okay, and this guy's funnier, but now this guy's funnier, but he's not as intelligent. So, okay, I'll go out on another date and, okay, this one is intelligent, but he's not as spontaneous. And so we have this mentality of, okay, well, I'll kind of try and pick and choose until I find perfection. And we're so focused on trying to find perfection that it's a one day, someday in the future that never happens because we don't see what's in front of us and we're not committed to it, um, in part. Hmm. Amazing. Wow, we can go on forever, uh, Joseph. These are some pretty hot topics. I guess the best place for people to find you is your website, right? CelebrateGroup.ca? Correct, yep. Okay, and, uh, so everybody, remember that, celebrategroup.ca. I look forward to your new book coming out uh, in the new year. And thank you so much for joining me today, Joseph. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed myself. And uh, I look forward to many more opportunities of us uh, being of service to each other and helping it, uh, you know, helping you grow in any way I can and bringing you more great interviews and things like that. Amazing. Have a great day, Joseph. Thanks so much. You too. Bye.